0: Does God love me? There's scarcely a bigger question that we could ask. Now some of you are thinking, well yes, that's the question that's always on my mind. Does God love me? And some of you are thinking, that's bonkers. Of course God loves me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I'm in the world, therefore God loves me. God loves everyone. And that's true. God loves every person and every creature that he has created. However, there is a special love that God has for some and not for others. Although it's not too controversial to say that God does not love Vlad the Impaler or Herman Goering the same way that he loves the Apostle John or Mary Magdalene. So how do we know if God loves us in that special way? How do we know that we have God's special love. The love that means that we'll spend eternity with him. The love that means that we'll not face the fires of punishment. And really, that's what the whole book of 1 John is about. That's what this passage of 1 John is about as well. John wants us to know that we're part of God's people, that we're loved by God. He wants us to know the hope that we have. He wants us to have certainty about our standing before God. You see, John wrote us his gospel to introduce us to Jesus, that we might believe in him. And he wrote this letter, 1 John, to you who believe, it says in 1 John 5, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this book is about assurance, knowing that we have eternal life. So John is wanting to assure us that we really have believed in Jesus, that we really do have eternal life, and that we really are loved by God with that special love. And the way that John has been doing that has been giving us some signs, some tests, as to whether we're in the faith or whether we're out of the faith. He's already laid down several tests, we looked at at them uh, this time last year. But in typical John style, if you've read his letters often or his his gospel, they sort of go round in circles. John comes back again to this same idea, these same tests but from a different angle. So what is the first test that he gives us about whether we have that special love? Well his first test we could call the love test. Do I love other Christians? Let me just read to you verses 7 and 8 again. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John's biggest test for us this morning to see if we have God's love is do we have that love for others? God is love, says John, so those born of God will bear bear family resemblance, if you like, a likeness love is intrinsic to who God is, so much that a child of God with no love is an impossibility. It can't be. A Christian without love is like bread without flour. It's like dry water. It's like cold heat. If there's no love, then we cannot claim the name Christian for ourselves, even if we pass the other tests. It's not that being loving creates a Christian, as though our love uh, earns God's love. But it's a sign, a marker, an indicator that we have been loved by God. Those who have no love have not been loved by God, says John. So if that's true, what's crucial then is we understand what does he mean by love. I mean, love is such a flexible term in English that it can mean almost anything. As a society, we're really mixed up over what it means. I saw a poster uh, last month, during pride month, that said, love is love. There you go, there's your definition, love is love. It made me think a little bit about Theresa May when she was asked to define Brexit. And she said, Brexit is Brexit. Don't worry, I'm not going there this morning. (laughs) But we don't really know what it means. we have programmes like Love Island, we've had the final this week. As though what goes on on that island is love. Is that love? Swapping partners every five minutes, competing with each other? Is that what love means? We have love songs, but they're always about romantic love. It's about those warm, fuzzy feelings in our chests. It's all about how we feel the butterflies and the overwhelming emotion. It's complicated by the fact that there are at least four words in Greek translated as love in English. You've got eros, which is sort of romantic love, Storge, which is a sort of love for your family. Philia, which is a sort of really like or love something. And then the word that's used here, agape. It's not a very common word in classical Greek. It's not used much. But it's used a lot in the Bible. And in fact, it's used 28 times here in just 15 verses. 28 times in 15 verses. And it's a word that Christians made their own. They sort of took this word and said, this is the love that God has. It's what C.S. Lewis called gift love. A love that loves the unlovable. A love that gives. A love that sacrifices. A selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. It's this love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. That is patient, kind. That does not envy or boast. That is not arrogant, or rude, or irritable, or resentful. That doesn't insist on its own way, or rejoice at wrongdoing. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and that never ends. That is the love that he's talking about here. And in the Bible, that love always has an object. It always has somebody who is loved. It's not some sort of abstract thing that we have out there, it's a way that we relate to other people. Here in 1 John, the object of our love is God and our fellow Christian. And our love for God is shown by our love for our fellow Christian. So verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our love for God is shown in the way that we treat other Christians. We can't say that we love God and hate his children. We can't say that we love Christ and hate his bride. Yes, we are to love others in the world. Yes, we are to love even our enemies. But the love that really marks us out as believers is our love for our brothers and sisters, our fellow believers, the church when rightly understood as the people. Loving other believers is the mark of a Christian. It shows the world that we're Christians. And it assures ourselves that we're Christians. That's one of the things that makes things like choosing permanent online church such a tragedy. You know, I'll take the God stuff, but I won't do the people stuff. Uh, I'll take the teaching, the singing, but the relationships. Well, that's just messy and hard. And yes, often they are, aren't they, if we're being honest. Let's face it. But that is the commandment that we have from God. Verse 21. And this is the commandment that we have from God. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers. This is not an optional add-on for the Christian life. It's a command of the living God. And physical church doesn't let us pick and choose who we rub shoulders with. Physical church doesn't let us decide who we run our race with a good thing. It sort of knocks off our edges, it exercises our forgiveness muscles. It lets us show love to people that we would not normally love. How can we show an unirritable love to fellow Christians if we're not forced to spend time with Christians that we might find irritating? Makes no sense does it? The whole point is that this love is above and beyond what the world shows to one another. And love like that is the love that God shows to us. Jesus himself said this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if that's true of the way that we love our enemies, how much more should that be true of the way that we love our fellow believers? And that really starts to get to the heart of what God wants to say through John here, what God wants us to understand. The object of this love is Christians, but the model of this love is God himself. This is the kind of love God wants us to have for one another, verse 9. What John is saying though is that this agape love that we're to show is seen in the cross of Christ. That's what that word propitiation alludes to. I know it's a bit of a strange sort of old word, but it means a sacrifice that takes away wrath, that takes away anger. It speaks of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God at sin on himself. God sent his Son into the world to die for us. And that is God's chosen definition of love. God sent his only begotten Son into a hostile world to sacrifice himself, to pay for sin, to bring us to himself. So when we want to think about love, we don't start with us, we start with God. We start with the cross. And when we look at those things, I love pales in comparison. It's a bit like that 1980s uh, classic crocodile Dundee. Oh, hang on, okay. <laughs> um, Someone attempts to mug uh, Mick Dundee with a pocket knife, sort of gets it out. And his girlfriend who's with him tells him, Mick, he's got a knife. And without flinching, Mick reaches behind him, grabs his machete hunting knife <laughs> that he just happens to have in his back. That's not a knife. This is a knife. And of course the mugger runs away. But what it's saying there is that there are some things that are just pale in comparison, aren't there? Whatever our love for God is, it's nothing in comparison with what God's love for us is. Our love's not even love really in that thinking, says John. This is love, God's love for us. But the love of God is uh, is given us in Jesus is a model for our love for one another. A self-giving love for the good of others. A sacrificial life-giving love that pours out itself in service to other people. That's the love that God is talking about here. That's not Love Island love. That's not warm fuzzy feelings. That's love that meets the needs of others. So do we have that love for fellow believers? Is that what characterises our relationship with those around us this morning, and further afield? Now in one sense you'll be relieved to hear the real answer should be a resounding no, in one sense. If you think that you've got this box fully ticked, then there's something wrong. If you think that you love other believers enough, look at the cross again, and think again. On the other hand though, Our love for each other should share common features with the love that God has towards us. That self-giving love passionately committed to the well-being of others. No one has ever seen God, says John, but they can see God's love in us. They can see God's love displayed in the way that we love one another. There's a sense in which that is a way that God is seen by other people in our love for each other. So do I love the people around me In that way. Do I love my fellow Christian that way? But that's not the only test. The second one John gives us to test whether God really loves us. Is the doctrinal test. The teaching test if you like. Do I believe and confess sound Trinitarian doctrine? Let me read to you verses 13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This is another one of the four tests that John gives us in his letter. We met this one last year as well the doctrine test. So the Beatles, unfortunately, were wrong. Love is not all you need. Actually, there are other things. You need sound doctrine too, especially when it comes to who Jesus is. Get your beliefs about God wrong and you'll end up worshipping another God, an idol. And this is hard, isn't it? Doctrines like the Trinity are hard, but they matter. Doctrines like Jesus as God and man are hard to get our heads around, aren't they? But they matter. In John's day, people were already getting all sorts of wrong ideas about who Jesus is. And throughout the book, John gives us truths about Jesus that we must confess in order to be sure that we're a true believer. Here, it's that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not the Father in disguise, like some heresies taught. He's not stopped being the Son of God, or, you know, was only the Son of God for a bit. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not a temporary extension of God that's now sort of been reabsorbed into God. He is the son of God, not was. And if you can't agree with these things, however nice and lovely you might be, you're not a Christian. Now that sort of statement doesn't make you popular. But it is true. Our church has a statement of faith taken from the FIC. Here's what it says, here's number one. There is one God. Who exists eternally in three distinct but equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is unchangeable in his holiness, justice, wisdom, and love. He is the Almighty Creator, Saviour, and Judge, who sustains and governs all things according to his sovereign will for his own glory. That's the FIEC statement of faith. What would your personal statement of faith be about God? About Jesus? you ever thought about that? Because believe it or not, says John, your eternal destiny hangs on what your answer is. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Our our answers to those questions matter. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of thinking, how how specific do I have to be? Do I have to sort of memorise these sort of things? And I think there is a bare minimum, which is nicely summed up in those sorts of statements of faith. Sometimes I wish they were a little bit longer, sometimes I wish they were a little bit shorter, but as statements go, I think our ones okay. I don't think John is saying that we need to have a degree in theology. That said though, don't we want to know more about God? Don't we want to know more about who is God is? Should we be happy with the bare minimum? Yes, I know my wife. I think I know my wife enough now. I'm gonna stop asking her things. I know enough to get by with my wife now. We wouldn't do that. Well, I hope we wouldn't do that uh, with our partner, would we? In days gone by, and in some churches to this day, when somebody was baptised or welcomed into membership, they would have to memorise a series of questions and answers. It's called a catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. Are there more gods than one? It goes on. Now I think there is benefit in learning a catechism, but I don't think that that's what we'll be asked on Judgment Day. I don't think we'll sort of be asked to, to list off a q and A. I I think it's more like a series of forks in the road as we go through. I think we see that in history as we go through, and it happens in our own life. We start with a basic statement like, God is. And then we learn and our knowledge of God grows and we begin to make our statement a bit longer. We start to firm up certain things and reword things and make them a bit clearer. We come to understand God as Trinity, for example. And what we mean is should sort of what we mean by that should grow, we should become clearer in our understanding. So here, for example, this passage teaches us about the Trinity. We see the whole Trinity at work the Father sending the Son. The Son being sent to be the Saviour of the world. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us and enabling us to testify to that. That's what these verses talk about. It's similar to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here, we're actually confessing that Jesus is the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. Even the statement, God is love, in this passage implies a plurality in God. What did God love before he made the world? How could that love be a self-giving love, like the one described here, if there was no one else to love? No, the Father and Son have been in loving communion from eternity, with the Spirit the very bond and seal of that love. Three persons, one God, from eternity. And our understanding of these things should grow as we travel further down that road. But if we take too many careless wrong turns at those forks. Or if we go wrong early on in the fundamental things that we believe, then actually we're going to end up on the wrong path, aren't we? And what John is saying is then we can have no confidence that we're a Christian, because the truths that we believe are true. So it really matters then, doesn't it, what we believe. It's not just a case of, do I believe in God? But what God do I believe in? What do I believe especially about God, especially about Jesus? Is he the only begotten son of God, or is he someone else to you? If he's someone else, then you need to go back to the Bible and change your thinking. So that's the second test. Do I believe and confess sound Trinitarian doctrine? And then finally, am I trusting in God's love for me? Let me read to you verses 16 to 19. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. With all the other things going on with this passage, I think it would be worth dwelling for a few moments in this last point on that massive phrase that we've got here. Just three words, God is love. You see, as much as this passage wants us to think about our love for each other, it wants us to think more about God's love towards us. The tests are there and biblical, but in the end, the question of whether God loves us comes down to the character of God's love. Love that sent his son to sacrificially die on our behalf. Love that loved us first. We love because he first loved us. So our confidence that is not how strong our love is, but on how strong God's love is. And that's why it talks about a knowledge and belief in God's love, in verse 16. And it's in His love that we abide, we live, we set down our roots. It's that love that gives us confidence for the day of judgment. His love. His love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. His love that changes us to love like Him. So that as He is, so we are in the world. We reflect God's love to the world as we love one another with that same love. And his love means that we need to have no fear. That we have no need to fear. Why should we fear somebody who loves us with the kind of love that God has shown? Why would we fear him? There is a right and godly fear that we're to have towards God, a reverence, a respect. But the fear that it talks about here is fear that God will punish us. On the day of judgment. God's complete and perfect love. His agape love. Says John. Should cast out that fear. We have no need to fear his anger. Christ has died as our sacrifice. Our propitiation. What more punishment is there to take. If you are fearing that punishment. Says John. You haven't quite got your heads around God's love. You have not been perfected in love. As John puts it. We haven't got our heads around the greatness and completeness of God's love towards us. A love that loved us first, before we loved anybody else. So really the question we need to ask this morning is, am I trusting in that love, in His love? That selfless love passionately committed to my good. That self-giving love that sent Jesus to the cross. Am I putting my faith in His love to me? You see, our trust, ultimately, shouldn't be placed in our own love. Though it's a sign for our assurance, it's not the ultimate source or grounds of that assurance. It's like the smoke, but it's not the fire. It's evidence that it's there, but it's not the real thing. Neither should our trust ultimately be placed in our doctrinal soundness, which again is a sign, but it's not the source of our confidence. The ultimate source of our assurance is God's unchanging, self-giving, eternal, selfless, faithful love. Really, our assurance is bounded with God's character. Who God is. God is love. And that means that when all else fails us, He will not fail us. When all else seems to crumble, He will not crumble. When all else causes us to doubt... God's love never leaves us in any doubt. He's shown us that love at the cross. His love is a a steadfast anchor. It's solid ground. His love is an unbreakable cord that binds us to himself. That's the kind of love that God has towards us. Towards me, towards you. So does God love me with that special love? If we've done what His Word says, if we trust in His Son and repented of our sin, then yes, yes, God loves us. He loves us, and in response, we love Him. So this morning, be assured of God's love towards you. But let your assurance lie in God's love for us, not in our love for Him. We started off with John three sixteen. Perhaps you could read it this way: For God so loved me that He gave His only begotten Son. And because I believe in Him, I will not perish, but have eternal life. Use those words to encourage you. Let's pray that we might have that assurance of God's love towards us. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for your love towards us. Father, thank you that our love, although it's, Father, at times it can seem so weak and feeble and changeable. Father, thank you that your love is not like that. Father, thank you for that love that took Jesus to the cross. That we might be forgiven, that your wrath might be taken, that we might not face your anger. And Father, help us to trust in that. And Father, in response, help us to love one another. Father, pray that that love that's been poured into our hearts would overflow to the people sitting around us. (laughs) Father, help us to love one another with that same selfless love. And so assure ourselves and show the world that we truly are yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.